Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit, and this show is actually an encore presentation of an earlier one. I'll talk about a case that no one would ever want to defend, the worst possible allegations, the worst possible case, but the incredible, fantastic result. In addition, in this episode, I'm going to talk about my first job in law, and you'll listen and hear how things have changed so dramatically in the practice of law. Back then, people were willing to do anything and everything to get ahead. You just had to do it if you wanted to survive. It starts in about early 2007. I received a call from an old family friend. Uh, it was actually a friend of my parents. He was a very older man, and he's calling me. I haven't spoken to the guy in 30 years since I was a kid, 40 years. I don't know. And he tells me that his driver had just gotten convicted. He had a couple of businesses, and his driver had gotten convicted in Newark of this horrible crime, and he wanted me to take the appeal. Now, I get calls all the time from friends and family. You know, you got to help this person. you got to help that person. And I listen. And then he told me what the charges were, that the man was convicted of molesting four little boys, all brothers. And you can guess my reaction was uh, nausea. And he, he said to me, you know, he heard that I was not thrilled about it. And he said to me, look, just, just go visit the guy. Can you just go visit him? And you'll see that he's innocent. And I'm like, right, okay. And, you know, but I didn't want to go. But I, for some reason, I guess in 2007, I still felt obligated to do things uh, for people when I really didn't want to. But I did it. So I'm driving down there, and I called up my uh, partner on many cases, Mark Furnish. He partnered with me on Gotti, and he actually wrote the Chapo Guzman appeal. And I say to him, can you believe that I got to go down and see this, you know, this guy's con convicted now of child molesting, you know, four little kids, and I'm complaining. And, and Furnish just, like, lights into me, which is hilarious. Uh, who are you not to represent a guy accused of molesting kids? Like, he's worse than the serial killers you've had, the mafia bosses, the drug dealers, you know, the white-collar guys who steal zillions of dollars and their victims are, are killing themselves after they're wiped out financially. And he was right. Um, you know, this is how lawyers are. You know, we're guys who would look down at me, lawyers would look down at me for representing someone like this guy or Chapo or Gotti or the alleged boss of the Colombo family now. They're just full of shit cowards, truthfully, lawyers. And to them, it's all about money. And they try to cover it up with their, you know, that they're representing uh, people that are above people like this. And, of course, they're representing fraudsters, as I said, whose uh, victims are killing themselves. And they'll virtue signal publicly. It's all virtue signaling. And, as I said, they'll represent a billion-dollar fraudster. It's all about money for them. Uh, they'll never take a case to trial. Very, very rarely. They just suck the life out of clients. So he was right. And I'm going to give you some examples. Lawyers who represent female victims of sexual harassment or assault and are constantly talking about women, women, women. Well, they secretly represented Harvey Weinstein. Lawyers who are constantly championing, uh, championing women's rights have represented Trump. Lawyers who've blasted Trump publicly then represent him a few weeks later. It's all about money. There's no personal beliefs in here. It's just this bullshit harum thing. And that's fine. You know, if you want to do it for the money, that's fine as long as you do your job. But don't come out publicly and, and talk about, you know, all your virtue. I don't want to hear that shit. And here's one for you, a trailblazing woman lawyer who sued Trump all over for all these sex assaults. Well, it comes out secretly. She was also representing Andy Cuomo and attempted to smear one of his sexual harassment accusers. 
at the same time, she's chairwoman of Time's Up, this organization founded by Hollywood women to fight sexual abuse and promote gender equality. And she was the co-founder of its uh, legal defense fund. Of course, she had to step down once it was revealed that she's smearing women because of Andy Cuomo. Because liberalism is more important than anything, let's be real. I mean, but you see how this works. The white-collar lawyers who claim that they're above it all, it's just about money. They'll do anything for money, but it's just about money. So they'll look down at someone like me who'd represent a mob boss or even a child molester. But as I said, it's okay to represent the fraudsters and Andy Cuomo at the same time you're talking about women's rights. My position, basically, is lawyers should represent anyone if they can work out an agreement with the client. You can't pass your value judgments on to who you represent. They're all charged with crimes. It's all bad. You know, stop the pontificating. We're all here for one purpose, and that's to defend the Constitution. Stop acting like you're better because you're not. If anything, you're cowardly because you never go to trial. All you do is uh, go on LinkedIn and pat yourself on the back and smooch prosecutors' asses. Anyway. I digress. So I end up going to the prison, and I think it was Essex County Prison in Newark, and I'm basically seeing a, a white guy in a completely black prison convicted of raping four black kids. So you can imagine uh, his future in prison. He's not going to be lasting very long because those kind of people get killed in prison. So I figure I'll see him for five minutes and, you know, do my duty and get out of there. He had a public defender at trial. And I assume that there was no money there because, you know, who would hire a public defender for a case that if you lose, you're going to die in prison. So I go in with the, really the lowest of expectations, and, and he was just terrified in prison. It was like uh, going to see an animal who had been beaten every day, like you could barely coax him out, uh, you know, from behind underneath the door. He was like a trapped animal, literally. He was so happy to see me, but you could tell real fear. And as I said, I've seen this kind of thing before, this type of fear. And it's, it's sad to see because this is still a human being. But at the same time, he's accused of molesting four small boys. And I had two-and-a-half-year-old twins at the time. And not really far from the age of the kids he's accused of molesting. So you can guess that I, I had some real uh, mixed feelings. You know, I listened to him, I suppose, you know, with, with one ear. And the case was bizarre. I'd give him that. It was a one-day trial, a hundred-page transcript, the whole trial. And the testimony was simply just the four boys. That was it. It was just the four boys who were testifying. And there was also a child abuse investigator who explained how she coaxed the four boys to tell her the story. And now, of course, he gets convicted instantly after that. The whole case was a day, and he was represented by a public defender in Newark. So, I, you know, I'm listening to this, and finally, I, I just said, look, what was the problem with the case? Just tell me. I don't want to hear it. Just tell me what the problem was. <clears throat> Not that he's the sole determiner of, of what's wrong with the case, but I hadn't read the transcript yet. I couldn't check to see if there were any legal or procedural errors, but I wanted to hear from him. That's why I was there. And he tells me, well... I had three witnesses who were actually there during the, all the time they claim that I molested these kids, and all the witnesses said that I didn't do it, and my lawyer didn't call them. And I'm like, what? All of a sudden, I'm like, what? How could this, how could this be? So I, I can't believe it, because it just can't be. I asked him who the witnesses were, and he said that two of them were uh, living in a house with him, and they were there all the time, 
And, you know, this made me think they were a little suspect because of their women living with him. They obviously have a good relationship with him. So they could certainly be shown to have a bias built in. Who was the third woman, I asked? Well, it was the aunt of the four boys who lived next door to him. And she claimed that all the boys lived with her the time this happened. She was aware of everything that they did. And she claimed that the boys never complained about anything that occurred at my client's house. And they were over there all the time. And she also said that the boys always came over in groups. The boys had testified they came over one at a time and got raped by my client when they were alone. But she said, no, I never let them go over one at a time. It was always in groups. And the kids also testified that they went to sleep when they slept at night in his bedroom. And she testified, she would have testified, that the kids all slept in the living room when they slept over. And that's what they always had told her. And that's what she had always seen. <clears throat> so I asked him, why hadn't the lawyer called them as witnesses? I mean, that certainly would have been enough to, uh, you know, convince a jury. And in my mind, at the same time, it certainly would be enough to convince a judge that a public defender was incompetent and that the conviction should be vacated. So he tells me that his lawyer didn't even speak to the women, but he could prove that he had told the investigator on the case and the lawyer about them. So I'm like, you know what? All of a sudden... Uh, I'm okay with this case. You know, the fact that there's child molestation, it's all out the window. Why? Because I think I can win. Now, the in order to get a new trial based on ineffective assistance of counsel, it's a two-part test, and it's set out by the Supreme Court in a case called Strickland versus Washington. It was a 1984 decision. The holding in the case is that a defendant, in order to show deficient performance of trial lawyers, you have to show deficiency and also resulting prejudice. In other words, the first part requires a showing that counsel made errors that were so serious that, in essence, he wasn't really functioning as constitutionally guaranteed counsel by the Sixth Amendment Constitution. And you can't just show that the acts of omissions or the acts of commission were simply the result of reasonable professional judgment, like strategy. You can't just say, well, the guy's strategy was really, really wrong. You can't say that. That's not enough because you're allowed to strategize and make mistakes. The court must determine, basically, in light of all the circumstances, if the lawyer's actions were outside the range of what's determined to be reasonable professional competence. And there's a presumption, by the way, that every decision that a lawyer does make a trial for a defendant does fall within that, you know, very wide range of reasonable professional assistance. But I still felt that with the, what he was telling me that this, this was going to work. How do you not call three witnesses that completely counter what the witnesses in the trial said? So I walked out of prison, and of course, I called Furnish up the first thing as I'm driving back. And now I'm screaming and yelling in the car uh, because I'm taking the case, because I'm going to win it. And, you know, naturally, my 180-degree uh, reversal made him laugh in my face. And he, he laughs at me a lot uh, in cases. And I'll get to that in another episode about trying to make Furnish laugh during trials is, is one of the goals. Anyway, so I read the transcript when I got back, and it was like 90 pages long. And as I'm reading it, I see so many bad things. The lawyer did almost nothing in the case. He presented no witnesses, no medical evidence to suggest that the rapes didn't happen, even though I later found medical reports that existed showing that the boys 
some of whom were anally penetrated, showed no bruising, no tearing, no bleeding, nothing when they went to the doctors. Nothing. And that's just not how it is. That's just not what medical science shows. And he made nothing of the many inconsistencies in the boy's testimony. Their testimony was inconsistent with each other. It was inconsistent with video statements they had made that came into trial. So the jury saw and heard all the inconsistencies. But for some reason, this defense lawyer didn't make a big deal of the inconsistencies uh, during the cross-examinations. And when the trial was over, the judge has to then give what's called the jury charge, has to explain the law and how the jury is supposed to judge the evidence. She has to give them instructions is what the jury charge is. And twice she asked him whether she, whether he wanted, the, this is the lawyer, he wanted an inconsistencies in the witness statements rule that's read to the jury. She was going to give this jury instruction. She asked him if he wanted, and twice he said no. Finally, she just like lost her shit on him and said, quote, I shouldn't have to do your work for you, especially since I brought it to your attention. It's obvious that the inconsistencies were there. It's like the elephant in the room. I have to talk to the jury about it a little bit. You know, you give an instruction. Basically, the instruction is if you find that one of the witnesses or any of the witnesses have statements that are inconsistent with each other, you can determine that they're lying. You can also determine that they're not lying, but you can determine that they're lying. And that's sort of common sense. And the transcript was so bad. It was so bad. And it was really a sad case as it was. One of the boys actually testified, mommy trades us for cigarettes meaning that the boys were given to my client in exchange for cigarettes. I mean, it just was the most pathetic case. So anyway, in order to get started on this, I had to call the so-called exculpatory witnesses up. These are the ones who supposedly would testify that the sex assaults couldn't have happened. You know, to in order to ensure that we had a basis for ineffective assistance motion, we had to make sure that we had witnesses that should have been called and would still be called now if given the chance, and that their testimony would change the verdict if they had testified. And that was really the whole case. So I was listening to him, my client, and I'm hoping that what he's saying is the truth, but we had to call the witnesses up. And incredibly, they were all solid. They were all willing to give us affidavits as to what they would have testified to to help the client out. And some claimed they weren't even contacted by anyone on the defense team. <clears throat> some said they had been. They Actually, all of them said they had spoken to an investigator, but then it just stopped. They just never received a follow-up call. They weren't called to testify. And we nailed all of those down in affidavit form. And I spoke to the investigator on the case. And he had stopped working on the trial a few months before it actually went to trial. And he had forgotten about the case. It was now, you know, a bit later. And he confirmed that he knew about all these great witnesses, and he told the trial lawyer about them. <clears throat> and the trial lawyer knew that they were great witnesses, and he didn't even know the investigator that these witnesses never testified at trial. He assumed that the trial lawyer got in touch with them and put them on the stand. He was shocked. So I got an affidavit from him as well, and he agreed to testify at the hearing for me. Then I tried to call the, the trial lawyer up to discuss the case with him. Now, Look, it's an uncomfortable situation when someone brings ineffective assistance against the lawyer for the work they did, but the lawyer is still expected to help the defense if they actually made mistakes. Because look, if you make mistakes, just own them. I mean, you've got a guy here who could, you know, die in prison 
And you're going to what? You're afraid to admit that you made mistakes? I mean, what are we doing this for if not to help get people out of jail if they were legally wronged? So, you know, I can understand if a client is going to lie his ass off about you and accuse the trial lawyer of misconduct, which never occurred. And then in my mind, all bets are off and the lawyer you should not have to protect the defendant anymore. He should protect himself. So I called the lawyer up to try to gently discuss his incompetence. Not that that's an easy call. And as you can guess, he never returned the call. And I'm calling and calling, no returns. Didn't return emails. He eventually returned a call with my associate. It was very brief. He basically made it clear he wasn't looking to help. You know, he wasn't looking to hurt, he claimed, but uh, it was pretty clear he was going to be doing the bare minimum, which was pretty much what he did at trial. But I wanted the file. That's really what I wanted. I wanted his entire file, and he promised to get it to me. So we get what we get from him, and it's pretty clear to me that it's not everything. It's stuff that he possessed, but it wasn't all the reports. It was, you know, maybe half. We put our motion together, and I was fairly certain that we'd get some play from the, you know, you have to go to the trial court, because I've got three witnesses that completely counter what the four witnesses testified to at trial. And I figured at the very least, the judge would give me a hearing to put all this on the record and to find out exactly what happened. And if the court found that the trial lawyer's representation fell below what's, you know, the reasonable standard, I'd be able to go to the second prong, which is to put the three witnesses on the stand, show what they'd say, and say to the judge, you see, there would have been a different result if these witnesses had testified. And then that would be that the conviction would be vacated. But first, we had to get to the sentencing. And this is now in June of 2007. The client has been in jail. He got remanded after he was convicted in January of 2007. And the sentencing was as ugly as I assumed it would be. The prosecutors asked for 150 years, and I had really very little to say other than the fact that I thought the defendant didn't get a fair trial, and the judge was, you know, just not, you know, feeling it. It was clear to me that she was angry, understandably so, and I simply said as my reasoning at the sentencing is, look, as bad as the actions were that he was convicted of, the kids are still alive, and I know this is, you know, not a real sensitive thing to say, but I said, well, what do you do to the guy who comes in front of you who raped and murdered four boys? You're going to give 150 to the rapist, and what, are you going to give the killer 250 years? And that's really all I said, and that's not exactly a very politically correct thing to say, but I'm trying to make a point with the judge, and it worked. And she relented, and she only gave him 27 years, but the truth is, He was dying in prison. There was no way a guy like this lasts 27 years, and he didn't seem to be doing all that well six months later. So we put our motion to vacate into the trial court, and it sat for seven months. It just sat, seven months. Finally, we get a decision at the end of 2008, and this judge, the trial judge, would not vacate the conviction and wouldn't even give us a hearing. And I was completely blown away. I was stunned that we couldn't even get a hearing on this? It's like, what is the downside? Are you that desperate to salvage this conviction and make sure that this guy dies in jail? I mean, I guess I understand your anger, but you're a judge, man. You know, you have to try to be fair even when there's really ugly shit in front of you. And it just made no sense. The the, the trial lawyer didn't even submit an affidavit in response to our accusations, our criticism for the prosecution. The judge was just really just papering over it, all of it by denying it. It was pretty clear to me. 
So we had to appeal her decision to the appellate court. And of course, the client remains in jail during the whole time. In March of 2009, we filed our appeal to the New Jersey Appellate Division. So now, you know, he's been in jail, I guess, for it's about two years. There was oral argument, and it wasn't until January of 2010, like nine months later, that we got a decision. And this is now three years after he's in jail. The trial court's decision was reversed, but only in so much as I was going to get the hearing that I wanted, you know, years before. And I would get my chance to examine this trial lawyer. And to me, man, I was thrilled just to be able to get my hands on this guy. And I knew that the longer that it went, the less he'd remember. And I knew that he was lazy. He didn't do anything for the trial. He wouldn't do anything for this hearing. I was pretty sure of that. So I prepared for the examination with the materials that he had given me and the public stuff, the transcript and whatever I get my hands on. <coughs> I knew that there was so much more that existed, but I also knew that I had these witnesses that he didn't even know apparently existed, or maybe he knew and just didn't do anything with them. So my thought was I'd get to the hearing and I didn't want to say anything about not getting the full file because I wanted to get a crack at him first without the full file. Why? Because I wanted the opportunity to ask the judge, look, I still haven't gotten all these materials. I'm going to need a second day. <clears throat> that would give me two cracks at him, which was a pretty big deal. And it was also, you know, clear to me because he hadn't responded to all of our requests. He, he just, he was so lazy that I could just tell from reading the, the transcript of the trial and the way he was treating uh, this hearing that, you know, th there was no way this guy was going to be prepared. The, the negative part was the fact that since we had gotten the affidavits from the witnesses that we were going to be calling, it's now years later. And now I'm trying to call them, to tell them, look, we got a hearing. There's been a reversal. We got a hearing. You need to come testify as to the second prong of the, the Strickland test. And guess what? Couldn't find some of them. Couldn't convince some of the others to come. They didn't want to come anymore. They were done with this. They, they were done. They wanted to get on with their lives. So now what's going to happen if during the hearing, the court found that I satisfied the first prong of the test, namely that the trial lawyer's performance fell below a reasonable level of competence, <clears throat> and then I was required to put on witnesses. <laughs> I was going to completely have to just wing it. And, you know, my thought was like, you know, what am I going to do? I don't really have a choice. I can't tell the judge I'm not going to go forward. So the hearing began, and, and, and I was really ready to set the table, so to speak. As I said, I wanted to nail him down for how he made decisions not to call these helpful witnesses, if he even remembered them. But I didn't want to dig in too deep unless the judge wouldn't give me a second crack at him. Because I knew that when I got the materials, I'd be able to dig in more and he'd be locked into these answers. Anyway, that's exactly what ended up happening is that I did get the second crack. I saw the trial lawyer before the hearing started, and I asked him for the rest of the file. <clears throat> and now, of course, he's very friendly with me now that he has to see me face to face. He said, look, I turned over everything that was in my computer, but I left the public defender's office, and I don't have the file in the case. I don't have access to it. I'm like, why didn't you tell me? Well, you know, I'm telling you now. You're going to have to subpoena it. So I'm like, fine. I get into court, and I tell the judge the problem that I've got to subpoena half the file, from the public defender's office that this lawyer, the trial lawyer, didn't get it for me. He didn't tell me that there was this issue. And she says, fine, you know, go ahead, put him on the stand. And, you know, if you need more time, a second day, you'll, you'll have a second day, which was perfect because the first day was really ugly. And this is what came out during the first examination. 
The trial lawyer claimed that he represented the client for a year and a half before the trial. He saw the client maybe once or twice during that entire time, an hour each time. So maybe an hour or two in a year and a half he spent talking to the client for a case that he would die in jail if he gets convicted on. He admitted that he was carrying probably 200 serious felony cases at that time, 200 as a public defender. How could he possibly put any time in with my client? There's no way he could have. And stuff comes out during the examination that you never expect. You know, when you have a guy like this on the stand, you can be really prepared, but you know he's going to say stupid shit and you just jump on him anytime you have an opportunity and just squeeze more of it out. Here's some of the things that came out. Question. So you had two court, you had two court appearances and you had two appearance, excuse me. So you had two appearances at your office with him for approximately an hour. And during those two hours, approximately of time, you discussed the entire strategy for the defense. I was trying to point out the fact that, you know, you had to prepare for this trial, you know, your, your theory of defense, and you must have had to do it during those two hours you met with him in the year and a half. This is his answer. Well, the entire strategy would have been discussed pre-trial during jury selection. Think about that. He actually testified that he did his trial strategy during jury selection of a trial. How do you prepare for a trial when you don't even begin to think about trial strategy until you're actually picking the jury in the case? During jury selection, you're supposed to be thinking about jury selection. He's thinking about the strategy then. You pick jurors based on your trial strategy. It was the most insane answer I could have ever imagined. I couldn't have drawn up a better answer for the defendant. In addition, he admitted that he had never been to the crime scene, which was the client's home. No pictures were ever taken of the crime scene for the defense. He mistakenly testified that three of the kids were living in foster care at the time of the alleged sex assaults. In fact, they were living next door. He testified that he thought three of the the witnesses that we had, the ones that we were going to use, he said, well, they weren't fact witnesses. They were actually character witnesses. I'm like, what? They weren't going to testify about the facts? That occurred? He said, no, Uh, they were character witnesses, if I I recall, and I was afraid to put them on because if I thought that I put them on as character witnesses, the prosecutor would ask him about sexual, the sex assaults of the defendant. (laughs) It didn't make any sense because they were not character witnesses. And regardless, I said to him, well, let's just assume that you thought they were character witnesses and you were thinking about calling them as character witnesses. Did you ask the judge for what's called as a motion in limine in advance of their testimony, and you get to make a determination whether the prosecutor could even ask such witnesses about the sex assaults, the alleged sex assaults? So did you even make that motion? No, no, no. But like, as I said, regardless, you have three witnesses that are fact witnesses that were there when all this supposedly happened, and his reason to not call them made no sense because they were character witnesses. It was insane. As far as I was concerned, this thing was over. And then he lied and claimed that he was still considering calling them as defense witnesses, but he didn't because he thought the trial was going so well during the one-day trial. Except I got him to admit that he never added their names to a list of persons who are read to the jury at the beginning of jury selection. Basically, when jury selection starts in a case, you've got the entire a pool of jurors sitting in a room 
and you say, look, this is what this case is about. Here are the names of all the witnesses, the defense lawyer, the prosecutor. If you know any of these people, raise your hand, because if you know them, you may have a bias and we may need to get rid of you before we even start this jury selection. So you tend to give every witness that you may call, even if they're long shots, because you don't want to have a problem later during the trial, you bring in a witness that you weren't naming at the beginning, and the guy raises his hand and he's like, oh, I hate that guy, and ends up hurting your case. You want to get all that bias out at the beginning. And, you know, he said, well, no, I didn't put their names into that list. And I knew because I read the trial transcript and the list of names were read to the jury. So anyway, it didn't make any sense at all. So he was trying to, it was clear to me what he was trying to do. Everything was trial strategy. Everything was trial strategy. Anything he could do to save the conviction. This is a defense lawyer. It's like, dude, calm down. And he was so over the top, trial strategy, trial strategy, because he knew what the law was. That was the only bit of law that he knew. And then he said, well, I never actually interviewed those witnesses anyway. I said, well, how are you going to call them even as character witnesses? He said, well, I never met them. I said, well, who met them? Just the investigator. I'm like, what? He says, yeah. I said, you, you don't meet witnesses that you may call and put on the stand? You don't even meet them before you put them on the stand? No, I let the investigator do it. And then he told me that one of the witnesses, the reason why he definitely didn't call him was because the witness was in a drug rehab. And it wasn't true. He was confusing this witness with somebody else. And regardless, he claims that, well, this witness didn't want to come and testify because she didn't want to lose her spot in this drug rehab facility. And of course, the investigator later would testify that this witness was desperate to testify, but was apparently never contacted for the trial. And by the way, she was never in any rehab facility at all. So I finished the examination, part one, and I insisted upon the full file from the public defender's office, and it took me months to get it from them. When I got it, I found all the investigator's reports, which said exactly what the investigator had told me, that they had all these great potential witnesses who would be helpful to the defense, and that they were all inconsistent with what the witnesses the kids testified to, and it was completely inconsistent to what the lawyer had testified at the first hearing. So part two of the hearing occurs months later in August of 2010. The client had been in prison now coming on four years and somehow had survived, but he was you know, falling apart. And the second part of the hearing, as you can imagine, was so ugly, is now I had real ammunition. All the investigator reports, all the hospital records, all the medical records. And I got the trial lawyer to admit that two of the four boys had claimed, two of the four boys that had testified, had claimed that never came out of trial because they kept it out, that my client had raped his goddaughter who actually lived with him. They claimed they were there, that they had witnessed him raping this little girl. Now, I learned this earlier from the investigator, and he said to me, look, she'd been examined at the hospital, and you know, there was, it was clear that she had never been raped you know, physically. In addition, she was prepared to testify. She was one of the witnesses, said that it never happened. And this lawyer, I have all these medical records of the goddaughter that showed that no rape occurred. She was willing to testify that it never occurred. But somehow, somehow, this doesn't come into evidence. Think about it. You've got four kids that are testifying. Two of them test, were prepared to say that he also raped this little girl. Just like I saw him rape me, he raped this little girl. But then the medical proof and the girl could have come in at that point into evidence to show that the two of the four boys were absolutely lying. 
It would have just destroyed their credibility. And for some reason, he didn't put it into evidence. It just makes no sense. You could show that two of the four boys didn't know what a rape was or were making stuff up. (laughs) How could they be trusted about their own testimony about what they claim happened? And as I said, there was no question that she wasn't raped. Medical evidence plus her own testimony. So I asked the, the lawyer during the hearing, he says, I've never seen this medical report. I said, it was in the file. It was in your file. He claimed, well, I still wouldn't have put her on the stand because I don't think I would have been able to get that medical report into evidence. I said, you wouldn't have been able to get it into evidence? How? If the boys are testifying that the little girl was raped by my client, how could you then not rebut their testimony by showing not only is she saying it didn't happen, but objective medical proof showed that it didn't happen? It just made no sense. He just kept saying trial strategy, trial strategy. It was just total bullshit. I then got the trial lawyer to admit that he wouldn't call the mother of the goddaughter. He said, why? I said, why didn't you call her? Well, because she had cancer and she died, which she did have cancer and she did die. And she was prepared to testify that everything was kosher, that, that her daughter had not been raped, had never discussed anything like that. And I then had asked him, why didn't he use a New Jersey court rule that allows you to memorialize a witness's testimony pre-trial to use it at trial in a videotaped deposition if they're sick and they won't make it to trial? He had no answer why he didn't do that and didn't even know what the rule was. And then the records from the file, it was clear from the investigator's reports because he interviewed this cancer-stricken woman and she was desperate to testify, but he never followed up. And I just took a shot because he was so lazy at this point. I asked him if he knew today what the New Jersey law was that would allow such a deposition to take place with a dying witness. Because you want to memorialize that testimony and play it at trial if the witness isn't going to last. Question, what is your understanding, if you can, of the New Jersey rule about memorializing testimony prior to a trial due to the illness of a witness? Answer, what is my understanding of it? Question, yes. Answer, I don't recall what my understanding of it was. I know I inquired about it. Question, what's your understanding now? Answer, I don't, I don't, I don't know what it is now. I don't remember. I don't recall. It was clear to me that he had prepared for this hearing as much as he prepared for the trial, which was zero. He was a complete zero. Finally, after 40 pages of this second examination, and it was just a bloodbath. It was just one bomb after another onto his head. The judge calls us to sidebar. <clears throat> now, keep in mind, this was the judge who had denied my initial motion for a new trial without even giving me a hearing, and I then had to get a reverse, so I figured she was pissed at me at this point. We all come to sidebar. As soon as we get there, she says, I'm vacating this conviction. This is so bad, I'm vacating it. The two of you can figure out how you want to go forward. Go to lunch if you want to together, but I'm vacating it. And then she said to me, put the investigator on the stand after the trial lawyer, make your record, but I'm vacating this conviction. Now, keep in mind that we still had prong two, that pesky prong two of the Strickland test for ineffective assistance. I had proved prong one, that the lawyer's representation fell below a reasonable standard. But wasn't I supposed to put the witnesses on the stand at that point? But I didn't have the witnesses. I didn't have shit. I didn't have him. The prosecutor naturally caught it, and he says to the judge, he has to put on witnesses. You can't uh, vacate the conviction. 
and I'm sitting there just frozen. The judge said, nope, the affidavits were enough for me. I've seen enough. It was like you turn around, you're looking for like candid camera, Alan Funt to come out from behind something. I couldn't believe that I had gotten away with this. I never had to put the witnesses on the stand. And I had saved this guy. He was now coming out of jail. And the feeling was just euphoric. I had changed history is how it felt. It felt so powerful to be able to take somebody out of the deepest, darkest hole. He was forgotten. He was done. He was a dead man. And be able to pull him out? A 27-year sentence was now officially vacated. And he was in a position to get out immediately. After all, he was in the same position now as was he as he was when the case started, when it was first charged, and he had been granted bail then. So now I'm walking back 15 feet to the table, and I see the client's face, and his, he's just frozen. He's just frozen. He had no idea what had just happened, but I did. And he hadn't spoken a word to me during the entire hearing. I don't think I even spoke to him once. He didn't even sit next to me because he was useless. He was half brain dead at this point. And I simply leaned over and said, you're getting out. She vacated your conviction. And the guy was just stunned. He just couldn't stop thanking me, thanking me, thanking me. I ended up putting the investigator on the stand and he testified exactly as I said that he would, that he told the trial lawyer <clears throat> that all these witnesses were great, that one of them was dying and then he needed to get that testimony done. And the lawyer claims he understood, but he never did anything to even try to speak to the witnesses. Nothing at all. And that was it. The client was let out of jail, a free man. The prosecutor ended up letting him plead to a lesser offense just to end the case. And I was sure I would have won it on retrial. But what was the point of taking a chance if there was a 3% chance I could lose and he would get life again? If you could get out, no more jail time, be done. That was it. That's what the client wanted, and I was happy to do it. And as we're leaving the courtroom, I mean, I'm on just such a high, the feeling of just, it's really just intoxicating, the feeling to be able to do something like this. This is like my day, man. I have so many tough days, but who has a day like this? And as I'm walking out of the courtroom after it was over, the judge calls to me and asks me to come into her chambers. And I walked in, and the prosecutor and my people on my team were walking behind me because that's what happens when you talk about a case. You have to have everybody, both sides, in at once. She stops them and says, no, just want him. I'm not going to be talking about the case. I just want to speak to him. And I'm walking into the, her chambers. I, I, I'm sure I had a smirk on my face. I'm sure of it. I couldn't hide it because I was feeling smirky. You know, I had just really done the impossible. And before I even sat down, she just looks at me. We're both standing up. She's like, how did he find you? Meaning the defendant. I said, well, he just found me. I'm just a regular country lawyer from New York City. She starts to laugh and she's serious. And she said, how did he afford you? <sighs> he had a public defender at trial, obviously. And I told her the truth that the, the client's elderly mother had savings. She worked her whole life. She had savings and she wasn't even aware that he had gone to trial until after he'd gotten convicted. He had never told her. I did it for somewhat of a reduced fee. I wanted a win. When you sense a win, your brain shuts off as a defense lawyer. And if you can believe it, you don't even care about money at that point. All you want to do is win. And think of this judge. She had already been reversed by the appellate court when she denied my initial motion. And after like less than an hour of an examination, she vacated the entire conviction. That's a fair judge at the end of the day. And that's what really separates us from the jungle, you know, from Iranians back to Iran, because we have justice here. It may not be perfect, 
but it's the best justice in the world. And when I spoke to the press after, and it's in the Daily News and the Star Ledger, New Jersey Star Ledger, and their articles there, I said, quote, when I first wrote the cross-examination, I felt that I'd be walking him out of prison one day. <clears throat> and that's the truth. As I said on a prior podcast, you know when you write the cross-examination whether you can win that battle. And I was sure that I would. I was sure I was getting him out. I was convinced. Quote, another quote. This is the sort of case that makes people sick. The judge hates you. The prosecutor hates you. The public hates you. And other defense lawyers hate you. Defense lawyers would rather represent a white-collar fraudster who stole $100 million, Lickman said. But it shows that no matter how deep of a hole you're in, if you work hard enough, you can persevere. And that's really how I felt then, and it's how I feel now. In life, if you work hard enough... You can dig yourself out of any hole, but you got to be willing to work. When I get back from this break, we're going to talk about my first job as a lawyer. And uh, I was thinking about it this weekend. I was talking to a friend of mine from law school, and one of my sons was with me, and I told this story, and I thought it was an interesting story. And I figured, hey, if they had to sit through it, you have to sit through it too. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. back with Beyond the Legal Limit. This is Jeffrey Lickman. And the first job I ever had out of law school, now I was a third year at Duke. This is about, let me think how many years ago. Um, carried the one, uh, 110 years ago when I graduated law school. Actually, it was 1990. And I did not want to work in a big firm. I wanted to work in a small firm because I wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer. And I wanted to learn how to do it right. I wanted to actually go to court I wanted to be taught on a one-by-one, one, you know, somebody who was the head of a firm who could teach me. And I didn't want to go to the big firms because I knew I'd just be wearing a double-breasted suit at the copy machine. And the reason I say this, I had a friend from college who worked on my floor when I was a young lawyer. He was in a big firm and I was in a small firm. And I would see him every day at the copy machine with his double-breasted suit on. He was very, very important. And he was making copies. That was the highlight of his legal career. So I wanted to actually learn. I wanted to be in a firm where I would not be buried at the bottom making copies. And I went to one large firm interview. I went to a bunch, but there was one in New York that I really wanted to work at because the head of the criminal section of that firm, he ended up now as actually a federal judge in the Southern District. Uh, he was a great lawyer, very well known. And I wrote my uh, letter, my cover letter to the firm. And when I interviewed at Duke, I said, you know, I want to work for uh, this lawyer, Jed Rakoff, who's again now a federal judge, had a great reputation. And as a judge, it, it couldn't be a better guy, just the best guy. And so I was right, at least back then in 1989 or 90. And they flew me to New York for an interview because I was a good student. I was at a top law school. And I'm you know, going to be meeting with Jed. That's all I wanted to do was meet Jed Rakoff and work for him. And uh, they come out to tell me to, to take me into the interview. And they tell me, well, you know, Jed is not here today and you're going to have to meet with somebody else. And I remember thinking, well, you know, this is when they're supposed to be nice to me. You know, they don't really start abusing you until you accept the job and start working for them. But they're very nice to you up until the point you accept. And then they just they treat you like, you know, your, your cattle. So I remember thinking, well, this isn't a good sign. If I can't get an audience with Jed when they're kissing my ass, 
what's going to happen when they're hitting me over the head with a shovel? So that was the end of my desire to work in a large firm in New York because I recognized that it would just it would just slow me down. I wasn't looking to be a prosecutor. I didn't I didn't feel that it was appropriate to be a prosecutor and also one day want to be a defense lawyer because how could I one day be looking to put people in jail? And then, you know, the next day, suddenly I want to keep mad at jail. It's just hypocrisy. And I found that former prosecutors that are now defense lawyers, for the most part, suck. They're just, they just don't have the same dedication. They don't have the same drive. Their drive is for money. They're poor as prosecutors. And it's just about money. They don't have the same love for the work. It's all, you know, uh, figuring out ways to cut corners. They don't actually believe in what they're doing. So anyway, I end up writing a zillion letters out. And one lawyer in New York gives me a shot. His name is Michael Kennedy. And he was a a, a really radical lawyer from California in the 60s, was involved in the Chicago 7 case and all sorts of, you know, really good leftist causes back when, when lefties were not, you know, psychopaths as they are today. And Michael was a brilliant guy, a brilliant lawyer, but an unusual dude. I worked there for two years, three months and 23 days. And I don't know that I ever had a real conversation with him. He just was very standoffish and not the most warm guy to people that worked for him. And that's okay. You know, it is what it is. Everybody's different as a boss. So uh, he let me come into his office, but he did not hire me. He said, I want to see what kind of work you can do. So I took an assignment and I just started working like, 16 hours a day, I'm just sitting in an area next to the secretary. I didn't even have an office. And this is how different things were back then compared to how they are now. And just worked, 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 gave him my work product. I mean, he didn't give me a computer. I had to go home and type up my notes. I mean, it was ludicrous. And I worked there for like two weeks, working my ass off. I never like left for lunch. I had like a brown bag. I would never dare leave the office. I was afraid that if I left, uh, he wouldn't let me come back. And the way I got hired is he walked out. Again, my office was in the middle. It was like an open space in between his gargantuan office that was like the size of a city block. And his wife's office was on the other side. And she wasn't a lawyer. I don't exactly know what she did. Even till today, I don't know. Um, His wife's name was Eleonora. She was a socialite, in essence, a socialite. Her real name was Eleanor. She was from... Jersey City, Eleanor, I think her maiden name was, but married Michael and became a socialite, you know, whatever. But to her credit, she was not like an obnoxious person. She was actually very warm and very funny. And it was actually a pleasure to have her around the office. You'd, you'd expect it would be worse, a woman that changed her name to become a socialite, but she really was a delightful person. And when I think back of my time working uh, for Michael Kennedy, his wife was just a very funny a good person to have around. It really, it really did help. Even though later at one point she told me that I was as fungible as a styrofoam cup and actually had the styrofoam cup in her hand uh, uh, as the prop to show me that was my significance uh, to the law firm. Anyway, so Michael comes out of his office after two weeks and says to me, says to the secretary, Shirley, who was from South Africa. She was about a hundred years old. She had these eyebrows that she painted on every day, like uncle Leo from Seinfeld. And some days they seemed that they were painted on a little angrier than other days. Just a doddering old lady. And I suppose Kennedy just wanted to keep her around. And he just walks out of his office and, and mumbles to her, Shirley, put Jeff on the payroll for $500 a week. 
And I was, I could not have been happier. This was a different generation. This shows you the difference between young people today. And then $500 a, a week. I didn't care if it was 20 bucks. I didn't care. I just wanted that fucking job. And I was so happy. I remember I finally took a lunch outside of the office and went to a Kaplan's delicatessen and, uh, you know, jammed the sandwich down my throat for three minutes. I allowed myself to be out. I worked every day of the week, including weekends, and I had to commute an hour and a half from New Jersey because I obviously couldn't afford an apartment in the city back then. And I would commute three hours a day and on the weekends, almost every weekend, I would come into the office as well because I wanted to get ahead. I realized I wasn't making any money. The only thing that I had there, the only chance I had to get ahead was to actually work hard and try to compress maybe two years of learning into one actual chronological year. So I'm making 500 bucks a week. And the day that he gave me the job was a Thursday. And when I got my first paycheck, I see that it's only got pay for one week. Forget the two weeks that I worked for him for free. I don't think I expected to get paid for that, but it was $500 minus whatever deductions. And I said to Shirley, I said, Shirley, well, what happened to the two days? You know, that was 40% of the week. And it's not very difficult to figure out what 40% of 500 is. I mean, I'm there for two out of five days. I'm getting paid $100 a day. Two out of five days, that was an extra 200. I should have made 700. And she said to me, and I, I, I just can't do her accent. It's too embarrassing. This high pitch, oh, I can't figure out uh, what, the, what percentage that would be, how much extra money. So she basically said to me that she was giving me 500 because she couldn't fucking figure out that it was 700 that I should have gotten. And let me tell you, when you don't have any money, $200 was like, that's like I could have lived on that for a fucking month. For a month, I could have lived on it. You know, that would have bought me like 600 bologna sandwiches. It would have bought me. So I wouldn't have to spend any money. I was making no money. So I worked there and Michael just had no, there was no guidance at all. Everything I did, I learned on my own. And that was frustrating. And one of the reasons why I left after two months, three months and 23 days and while I'm there, after, I don't know, a couple of months, somebody in the office, I don't, I don't think it was Michael because he, he mostly never spoke to me, might have, been, might have been the secretary or his wife, asked me to walk his dog, go to his apartment. He lived in this, you know, again, a palatial estate on Fifth Avenue, just this gigantic apartment. You walk inside and it was like a museum. I mean, like the couch is worth more than my car now. And it was funny in a way because when I told people this, everybody was like, oh, God, how disgusting. He made you walk his dog. But I was so happy because I love animals. And I got to hang out with his dog. And it was like the best part of you know my time almost working there was hanging out with this dog. I didn't have my dog in the city. And what was better than walking not guilty, the poodle, around the block a couple of times? Yeah, he named the dog not guilty. It was such a easy name to remember. And if you're a dog, you have to hear not guilty, not guilty, you know, just some, some posing bullshit. Anyway, so I would walk not guilty. And um, I think I might've picked up dry cleaning a couple of times, but again, this is what it was back then. You did what you had to do and you kept your damn mouth shut and you worked. You didn't care because you wanted to keep the job. Then there was an older associate, one year older than me, Greg, um, and Greg and I were the you know, beleaguered associates in the law firm. He asked us to 
take coats, hang up coats at a party that he was having, like one of these socialite parties on Fifth Avenue. And Greg and I were there. I was 26 years old. I think Greg was 27. And we actually said yes. And we were there while all these socialites in their gowns were walking into the apartment, throwing their coats on top of our heads, were hanging them up. And Greg, it was a very funny night. Greg was convinced that he could hit on every daughter of these wrinkly old socialites and somehow he'd be able to charm them. And I'm like, dude, we're the fucking hired help, okay? We're like the back of the bus. These girls are looking at us like we're like 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 the gum on the bottom of their shoes. You think they, they don't know that we're lawyers? They don't care that we're lawyers. They want rich people, and rich people are not hanging up the, the fucking coats. So needless to say, the end of the night, n- none of the uh, young women even like looked at us. Eleonora, and, I, and I, it's, again, I, I, it's hard for me to say Eleonora instead of Eleanor, but I'm going to say it out of respect because I'm all about respect. She comes down and handed us each a plate of food. Like we were, we were literally the hired help and she's given us food at the end of the night. I mean, we didn't get to eat during the party, of course, because you do not want the, the, uh, the coat men to be seen eating. They need to be hanging up the coats and you know, I can't tell you how many coats. I'm not good at hanging stuff up. I can't tell you how many coats hit the ground. Many, many did that night. So then it was like a couple of months later, Michael calls me into his office. For some reason, I guess he felt that I was more willing and he has a look on his face of just utter, you know, exhaustion. And he looked like he had just gotten slapped around. And, and this was a tough guy. I mean, this was this was a fighter. This guy was a, a tough Irish dude, a real brawler. But he was soft for his wife. I mean, to his credit, he loved her greatly. And she was very dedicated to him. But she occasionally mopped the floor with him, as, as I remember, which was shocking to me. Because, again, he was a strong guy. And he looks at me and says, you know, we're having a party at our house in the Hamptons. Now, he lived on a, on a gigantic house in Wainscott on the ocean. I mean, I don't know, the house, tens of millions of dollars it's worth now. Just incredible. And there was like a, a, a stretch of land next to the house that he owned as well, a plot. It was just like a buffer between his house and the house next door. He bought the house and the property in the 70s when it was very cheap. And again, he was socialite. He was friends with all these famous people in New York. And we, we represented Ivana Trump in her divorce from Donald back then. That's a story for another day. And he says, I'm having this party at my house. And I'm thinking, my God, I'm going to actually get invited to this party. And he says, Christy Brinkley and and Billy Joel are going to be there. And I'm getting all excited. I'm finally going to rate. I'm going to be a human being. And uh, can you park the cars? <laughs> he actually asked me to park the cars. Now, I would have done it. I would have done it. But for the fact, it wasn't my pride that you know, made me have this look in my face that made him say, you know, she made me ask you. And I said, no. And he was completely fine with it. The reason I didn't want to do it, the truth was, I knew that I was going to smash cars. It's not so easy to park cars. You know, it's not like parking your own car. You know, go to any parking lot. It it takes an art. You got to back them up. You got to put them an inch away from each other. You got to be able to get them out. I mean, that's that's a fucking art, man. You can't just park 40 or 50 cars. I'd have them like along the, the side of the road. Every, everybody's car would have gotten smashed and I could just see it quickly in my head that he hires me to, to park the cars and I just destroy $3 million worth of cars. Anyway, that was my role in the law firm. In terms of like the legal work that I did, I had some great cases that I worked on 
we had um, these two brothers that had a pornography empire, the Mitchell brothers. They did the movie Behind the Green Door, which is a famous porn, porno from the 70s. And they had some um, theaters, pornography, you know, the stripper theaters in California. Anyway, one of them killed the other one um, with a gun, shot him. And Michael represented the one that obviously survived. And uh, the trial was in California. Michael ended up getting a great result, got like a, a, a manslaughter conviction, I think, Jim Mitchell only did a few years in jail. It was a wonderful result. But I was tasked with writing the motion to keep the cameras out of the courtroom. Court TV had just started. It was big. And they made an application to televise the trial. And we were afraid that if you had porn stars that were going to have the opportunity to perform on TV in front of a national audience, you know, while they were testifying, they may be more willing to stretch the truth and make themselves appear more significant in the story and could lie. So I'm working feverishly on this case, on this motion. And I remember while I'm working on it, Eleonora walks into my office and it was around Christmas time. And she says, listen, everybody in the office has to get something for the party. And I'm like, what? I'm like, work. I'm like, I'm working here, lady. And she's like, you know, you've got to go out and get the festive plates, the festive plates. There must be festive plates for the Christmas party. So you got to understand, I am from New Jersey. I don't know what the fuck festive plates look like. I, I, you know, I'm from New Jersey. I grew up eating on paper plates. And I'm still, like, I'm, I'm, I'm in my 50s now. I'm no different. I'm no different. I'm exactly what I was back then is what I am now. So I'm like, seriously, I got to get this motion done. It's due, like, in, you know, a few days. Just go out. You've got to get the festive plates and make sure they're festive. So, you know, where am I going to go to get festive plates? In Manhattan, it's not like I'm going to go buy China. I've got to buy like, you know, plates that can be thrown out. You know, it's a, it's an office party. It wasn't on Tavern on the Green. So, of course, I made the maximum effort that I would usually make in something like this. I went to one store. I went to the Dwayne Reed that was connected to our building. I walk inside looking for festive plates. It's around Christmas time. I figure I got a shot. There are no festive plates. There are three choices in the entire place, white plates, you know, those, just those white plates that you see at any uh, picnic. And there were these pink and baby blue plates. Now, looking back, I suppose these plates, I should have known that these plates were for, uh, you know, a baby shower or something like that. I didn't know. I mean, I just, I just grabbed them to me, pink and blue. Fuck you. They're festive. And uh, I came back and I went back into my office. I threw the plates in the kitchen, went back to my office, continued to do the work. She comes into my office, Eleonora, and she says, what were you thinking? And I'm like, excuse me? She said, these are not festive plates. These plates won't do at all. I said, well, they're colored. She said, you know, they're, they're baby colors. They're not Christmas colors. They're not festive. We can't use these plates. So I just looked at her. She looked at me and she just you know, in a, in a huff, her hair, I can still see the hairspray flying out of her hair. She flung it around and walked out of the office. She didn't even trust me to get plates at that point. And um, we ended up, we had festive plates at the party. And my pink and blue plates were used in the office over like the next year. Anybody needed a plate, you grab one of those plates. Anyway, we ended up winning that motion. We kept the cameras out of the courtroom. And I remember Eleonora was the one that told me back then there was not an internet. This is 1991, 92. And we would get a call from the court. You'd get a letter. You know, there, there was not even email back then really that was used. She comes back and tells me that we won 
And this was the styrofoam cup story. She's got some coffee, I guess, in it, and she just finished it. And she could see the glee in my face. And uh, she says to me, hey, relax, you're fungible here. She holds up the styrofoam cup. She goes, this is your significance in this law firm. She was kind of joking, but not really. You know, that's how first-year lawyers were thought of back then. You know, we were just, uh, we were slaves, which was okay for me because nobody else gave me a chance but Michael Kennedy. And I'm forever grateful, even though I was treated like swine. <clears throat> Another quick story, if I, if I may. Well, I've got a few more minutes left. I was making that $500 a week at the beginning. And he said to me, I'm going to make it 600 a week when you pass the bar. Now, I had taken the bar. I started working for him in October of 1990. I had taken the bar in July of 1990. So I didn't realize that $100 a week was, you know, hanging in the balance when I studied for that bar. If I would have known, I would have worked a lot harder on the bar. So I'm sweating onions, waiting to find out if I passed. And finally, around Thanksgiving, I find out that I passed the bar. And I have got to get in a huge amount of paperwork to get this thing in so I can actually get sworn in. Because when I went to Michael and said that I passed the bar, he said, no, 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 no. You've got to get sworn in because I can't use you in court until you're officially a member of the bar. And just because passing the bar exam doesn't get you in, you've got to get letters of recommendation. You've got to fill out these papers. You've got to get your fingerprints. I got to do a, a criminal background search. And I'm you know, handing out to everybody that I ever worked for in summer jobs, letters, blank letters of recommendation they had to fill out. I'm calling them like an hour after I gave it to them. Are you done? Are you done? Are you done? Because I had to get that shit in, had to get it in so I could get sworn in. And I did it really quick. I was so fast because I was so desperate for that extra hundred bucks a week. When you're poor and you don't have any money, a hundred bucks a week was 20% more than what I was making. And I was taking like, you know, 17, you know, I was like basically saying I had like 17 children to try to max out the amount of, uh, of uh, money that I could get each week. You know, if you said you had, you know, one uh, exemption, whatever it's called, I had like 17, anything I could to get as much money as possible. I figured I'd pay back the taxes at the end of the year. I figured out then. So I rushed to get my paperwork done and I'm in a small group. We finally get called in, uh, 20 of us to get sworn in one day. And it was a real ceremony. And um, it was like the second class of that year. It was January 7th of 1991 that I got sworn in. These were people that really worked hard to get their paperwork in. And of course, John Kennedy Jr. Now, he didn't do shit to get his paperwork in because he was so dumb. It took him, I think he failed the bar three times. You know that he wasn't hustling like I was to get the paperwork in. Somebody obviously, some slave obviously did the work for him. He was in the group with me. We got sworn in together. And Jackie and Caroline were there in the audience, and they watched the entire thing as well. And we all got sworn in together. And all I remember is looking at John Kennedy, who was ahead of me in line, one ahead of me because it was alphabetical. This was like the best-looking guy I've ever seen in my life. And this is, you know, this is not – there's no gay here. This guy was so good-looking that I was like, holy shit, that's a good-looking guy. That's what I remember from that day. Anyway, back to Michael Kennedy. Now making $600 a week. And finally, I screw up the nerve after a year or so to ask him for a raise. I mean, I remember for my Christmas bonus, I, I got a belt. I got a belt. I got a belt. I really needed money because I was poor. I was living at home. So I screwed up the courage and I went into his office. I asked him if I could speak to him. And you never called him Mike. His name was Michael. 
And I said, Michael, can I speak to you? Uh, here's the deal. I'm commuting an hour and a half a day, twice a day, and I'm losing three hours a day that I could be using for work by commuting. I said, if I could afford an apartment in the city, I would you know, live here and I'd be able to do so much more work for you. Well, that was a pretty good rationale. He listened and he says, you know, that makes sense. As soon as you find an apartment, let me know and I'll give you a raise. Now, this is a guy that made millions of dollars a year. And what I guess he figured how tough it was for somebody making 600 bucks a week to be able to afford an apartment. It wouldn't be so easy. I found an apartment, the second apartment I looked at, like the next day. Now, there's only one problem with the apartment. It was in a doorman building and it was a very small one bedroom, one bathroom. But, you know, not being a studio was amazing. I was thrilled by it. I walk into the apartment and there, it's very dark. There are heavy curtains over the window. I see a portable bed, like a hospital bed in the middle of the living room. I see a portable toilet in the living room. I see a walker in the living room and it just smelled like, can you guess? It smelled like death. The only person that was missing was the person who had just died in the apartment. So I was, I'm a little concerned about karma sometimes. And I said to the broker, I said, whoa, whoa. I said, did somebody just die here? No, no, no. And I never questioned. Of course somebody died there. Where, where do you go after a portable toilet, a portable bed, a walker? You go into the fucking ground. But I didn't care. Just slap on some paint, get me in the apartment. So I wrote out a check. I, I literally wrote out 1033 was the rent. It was the first month and it was security. I had $1,000 left to my name. And I go, now I'm living in the city. Now I'm big timing. I've got a, a lease. I go back to see Michael and I said, you know, I've got a lease. I just signed it. Can I get that raise now? He says, well, you know, I thought about it. I can't really afford it now. You know, why don't we wait until after the beginning of the new year? And I'm like, what the fuck? H how am I going to, what? I'm making 1033 a week. That's like $4,100 a month. I'm bringing home like, I don't know. 2,500 of it. I'm giving a thousand of it back to rent. I've got cable. I've got power. I've got phone. You know, back then you had a phone bill. You had a hard line. I had to actually eat. I had to buy food. I never went out and it was brutal for months. I would see how long it would take me. I'd go to the ATMs. You know, when you go to an ATM, how much money you take out? I would take out 20, one single 20. And if I was really feeling, you know, feeling good, I'd take out 40 bucks and I'd make like 40 bucks last, you know, sometimes two weeks. I wouldn't eat three meals a day. That's for sure, for sure. But I was poor. So finally, at, after the beginning of the year, after four months like this, he gave me a raise and I went from $30,000 a year. That was my $600 a week. And I made 36,000. So I got a 6,000, I got a, a $6,000 raise over 52 weeks. That was about, $110, $15 a week more. That's what I made. Needless to say, once I figured out that I was actually a rarity among um, young lawyers, namely that I was willing to work hard and not be a, a lazy uh, bum, I you know, took my talents elsewhere and went to Jerry Shargell. And that's, I think, an interesting story um, to see how it was back then as a young lawyer. And I don't, I never had any resentment for Michael Kennedy because, you know, although he was, you know, incredibly cheap with me, and I would never have done that to a young associate because you don't want to starve them. You'd rather pay them $100 more a week than what perhaps they want and $100 less. Because if it's $100 less, they want to, like, they're, they're having fantasies of murdering you. For $100 more a week, you know, they'll walk through a wall for you. 
But for me, I was thrilled at the opportunity. He gave me my first opportunity and he taught me some things. Namely, uh, you don't take shit from anyone. And uh, if you have any kind of revenge fantasies, you take them. And I'm going to tell you one more quick story was when we were doing the Gotti appeal. Um, we did, we represented Frank Lacasio and Michael Tiger and was involved at the University of Texas. He represented uh, Gotti and Frank Lacasio with us. Charles Ogletree from Harvard represented Gotti. I mean, it was really a wonderful bunch of lawyers. And they all convened on Kennedy's office one day of a discussion uh, right when Gotti was sentenced. And uh, Bill Kunstler was there, the famous, famous, famous civil rights icon as a lawyer and just the most wonderful guy. He was so nice to me. He was so kind to me. And this guy was, you know, world famous back then. Such a wonderful guy, you know, took pity on a, a young kid like me. Tony Cardinale from Boston was there. I remember he said during the meeting, you know, if I have to say that I was drunk during the trial, because he was one of the lawyers, one of the trial lawyers, if, if I have to say that I was drunk during the trial, I'll say it, anything to help these guys get out. I couldn't believe the shit that I was hearing. And Kennedy, for some reason, just hated Al Krieger. He's dead now. Or I don't know that he would say, I'd say hey, but he didn't like him. He thought he was uh, full of shit. So he says, uh, he goes, watch this at the meeting. He says, I'm going to steer Krieger. I've got a chair that's that's broken at the table. So uh, everybody walks into the office and he steers Al Krieger to the broken chair. And it's an elegant chair. The chair, again, is probably like a $10,000 chair. Krieger sits in the chair. It just collapses, this wooden chair. He's on his back. He quickly gets up, grabs two pieces of it hands him to Kennedy and says, Mike, put this in the box. I'll take it. <laughs> and I remember that back then. Uh, it was uh, you know, a wonderful time as a young lawyer when I was so terrified of losing my job. I was so terrified of being a failure that I was willing to work 24 hours a day if I had to, anything to get ahead, anything to learn what I had to, to get ahead. Uh, that's what you did back then. Different generation. Now, all they want to do, all the young kids want to do is uh, go on Instagram and lie about their accomplishments. Anything that I've ever done as a lawyer, you know, young associates will say that they did it, even though uh, they were, you know, 60 miles from the courtroom. That's just how it is. Nobody wants to work hard. Different world today, which is why, you know, the older lawyers are, are better and smarter. Not that I'm the older one, yet I'm still young. Jeffrey Lickman for Behind the Legal Limit. I went over a little longer than I wanted to today. I appreciate everybody sticking with the story as long as uh, as they as they could. If you want to listen to me, you can go to beyondthelegallimit.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio. Give me some positive reviews and if you hated it, you know, feel free to email me, but don't threaten my life and, you know, don't uh, wish me to hang from a tree. I really would appreciate that. Thank you. All.